everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Reverb. Uh, my name is Alex Helberg, and sitting here in the studio with me is my co-host, Calvin Pollock. How are you doing? And we also have a very special guest in the studio today. Uh, we have PhD candidate in rhetoric at CMU, Maggie Goss. Hello. Hi, to- Maggie. Hello. It's Thank great- you for having me. This is so exciting. Yeah, it's Thanks great to have you here. in here. Yeah. Thank you for being here with us. So Maggie studies political and feminist rhetorics here at CMU, and we wanted to bring her in, and we wanted to have this episode because uh, we're trying out a little bit of a new format on today's show. Rather what? Than- <laughs> oh, yeah. I didn't tell anybody about the fact that we're doing <laughs> this. Is I'm just blindsiding everybody today. That's, that's kind of the goal here. So essentially, uh, we're trying out a new episode format that we're tentatively calling Rejoinder, and this is that's going Re colon joinder. Re colon joinder. We thought about rebuttal. We thought about uh, re. Mm. Uh, Too much but. Revision. Revision. Re Mm. that vision you had last night. Yes. Regarding that vision you had. It was not reality. Yeah. Mm. No, re, revision mm-hmm. is when we when we come in and start just start trying to rhetorically analyze our dreams. Yes. That's going to be that's going to be the next I <laughs> the will next definitely come back for that one. Yes, for sure. I dream You're a welcome. Lot. Yeah. Thank you. No, today Rejoinder is going to be a series in which we take the hottest takes from around the net on academia, on language, on politics and culture. Just steaming hot, really bad, uh, ill-advised takes that are still in some ways legitimized by publications on the web and circulated in what are ostensibly supposed to be serious academic or uh, traditional circles. So really, we're just coming in to kind of issue a little bit of a corrective to some of these takes and provide a little bit of our own academic perspectives on why maybe they should rethink this. Uh, (laughs) So that's what we should have called it, rethink this. Rethinking this. (laughs) Uh, no, so I think part of the idea behind this series is that we're seeing more and more public discourse about academia, right? You you hear conservative pundits like Ben Shapiro and other people who are kind of going around and saying, oh, academia is just a place where liberals live in a bubble. You know, they're not really even studying anything. They're just complaining and turning their politics into, you know, so-called research. So we wanted to look at examples of how public discourse about academia circulates and what that does socially and politically. Precisely. As a preface to, before I introduce the article today, I just want to issue a little bit of a, just an open question uh, to both of you. Mm. And this is something that I think we can all regard as a very serious problem. Do you ever just feel like there really just aren't that many men in academia anymore? Yes. Every day of my life. (laughs) I mean, as a man. Let's be frank here. Speaking as a man, I really feel like the Academy has been stripped of its masculinity, if you know what I'm saying. How do, how do you feel about this? Well, I personally think there aren't enough men in this room, in this conversation. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, what, we have two? Yes, it's two to one ratio. Yeah. Two to one ratio. I yeah. mean, that is, we're, we are not doing well. Yeah. No, it's we really good. need to. Yeah, it's we not need good. To I am wearing pants, though. I'm not wearing a dress, so ah, that's good. I'm trying we, to be a little masculine yeah, yeah, thank to you. fit in, thank to make you. you feel more comfortable. Yeah, but... no, that's good. And, and we do, yeah. so we thank you for that. Yeah. Uh, no, okay, so <laughs> we're, we're starting from this basic premise, this open question of masculinity and manhood in academia. So the article that we're reading today comes from a little online publication called Aereo. That's A-R-E-O. If you're not familiar with this magazine, one of its lead editors is uh, Helen Pluckrose. She was one of the people who was behind the SoCal Squared hoax that essentially attempted to publish a bunch of hoax papers in academic journals in the humanities. Mm. They were on these topics that were deigned to be ridiculous. They were fake research papers, and it was done to show how ridiculous 
close the humanities have gotten and how unserious and unrigorous their scholarship is. So it was incredibly in bad faith. It was just kind of a stupid trolley move. That's just to contextualize the medium of this publication. The article itself is entitled, Why Traditional Masculinity is Good for Academia by Samuel Vissier. So I'm going to get into reading this article, and what we're going to do for Rejoinder today is uh, I'm going to go ahead and do a little reading series where I'm just going to go through and read some bits and pieces of this article, and then my colleagues here are going to uh, help us do a little uh, a little pot roast of this uh, extremely <laughs> already extremely hot take. Well, I love pot roast, and I think I'm going to love this article, so let's get into it. <laughs> I think we're going to all love both. So just to give a little content warning uh, right from the top, this article does have a little bit of a vague and sometimes explicit uh, transphobia and misogyny that is often, I would say it's masked or it's trying to disguise itself as scientific research or, you know, kind of in the vein of like a Charles Murray scientific racism or scientific sexism kind of thing. So that's just something to keep in mind. And we'll talk more about that as we uh, as we get into the article. So why traditional masculinity is good for academia Male sex, and manliness in particular, should be important criteria for admissions and hiring committees. Here's why. Strange things have happened in academia. In the late 1960s, Derrida and Levi Strauss were debating psychological universals and the epistemological construction of binary oppositions. <laughs> Derrida offered nuance, Levi Strauss depth and precision, while Foucault argued that power isn't just a simple top-down story. By most accounts, the post-structuralists won. So did the predictable logic of McDonaldization in the realm of teachable ideas. Who could have foreseen that 50 years later, far from getting rid of binary thinking, we can now summarize a social sciences and humanities education in a two-column table. So there is a column that's inserted into the article here. The one on the left says bad perpetrator, and the column on the right says good victim. So I'll just go through some of the uh, bad perpetrators versus good victim. Bad perpetrator, the West. Good victim, the rest. Bad perpetrator, men. Good victim, women. Bad perpetrator, white people. Good victim, POCs or people of color. Bad perpetrator, heteronormativity, but also gay and also women. Good victim, queer everything, trans, femme presenting, trans women, trans men, and then in parentheses, this one is complicated. It's a lot going on there. Bad perpetrator, settler. Good victim, indigenous. Bad perpetrator, Israel, good victim, Islam. Okay, so, wait, can we pause for a second? Yes. I have, well, so I have some questions. Yes. Let's I'm ask. a visual person, so I'm yes. like imagining this table. What's a bad, like, what does a bad perpetrator mean? I think they're trying to say, you know, the bad guy in the simplistic binary yeah. story. Okay, so According, like in yeah. our, so <clears throat> academia is viewing men. Men are the, the bad West, perpetrators. They're the bad. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then yeah. the women are the evil ones. Or oh, excuse yeah. me, the good. The good victims. The good victims. Yes. Yep. And there's an important addendum down here. Before we go into breaking some of these some of these hmm. other ones down, it's, there's an asterisk next to good victim. And down at the bottom of the table, it says, the more victim identities you can stack up, the more they intersect, and that is italicized, the more they intersect to make you more virtuous. Uh, well, this is good because this is telling me that the author is obviously very familiar with the theory of intersectionality. Yes. Big has read, fan, yeah, yeah, Kimberly Crenshaw's work <laughs> in depth. I'm glad that he's, Clearly. yeah, engaging with that. Uh, I'm also interested in this idea of a good victim 
because it like what is a then a bad victim victims aren't really good or bad to be you know to be a victim is it's not a, you know what i mean I yeah think, it seems mm. to be more that this that this author is is saying you know from the perspective of the humanities and social sciences mm. no matter what these people are always good and they're always victims that seems to be at least oh, what it's going I for i don't know if it was trying to set up a, an, an opposition although you could argue that if for example somebody from the bad perpetrator list like men claim themselves to be victims they are actually bad victims because it's not true right i see right. i don't men know can't ever be victims that's right um yeah. I, I do want to, like, we can't let that opposition between Israel yes. as, as a bad perpetrator Thank and you. Islam as a good victim, as if those two necessarily go together. Are diametrically, the author's telling on themselves mm-hmm. for diametrically opposing those two. Well, it tells you that they clearly know a lot about the Israel-Palestine conflict and, yes. and, and about, about Israeli politics, that, they, that, that it's clearly only about religion yes. and it's about Israel and Islam. And that Israel represents, you know, in that case, you're setting up a dynamic between a nation state and a religion. A, a global religion. Yes, a global yeah. religion. Which definitely makes a lot of sense oh, yeah, to, absolutely. to oppose <laughs> yep. those things. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so anyway, yeah. So <laughs> On board so far. All right, cool. So as long as we're, we're, we're on board with these oppositions of bad perpetrator and good victim that the author has set up so far. <clears throat> so the author talks a little bit more about uh, this. Those author- also sound like band names, by the way. Bad perpetrator, <laughs> good victim. Bad perpetrator. Yeah. I see them on tour. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. They're, they're on the warped tour. <laughs> <laughs> good one, Calvin. We're, yeah. we're doing a warped tour through this article. We are. So, oh, jeez. Uh, so <laughs> Maggie is a big fan of our puns off mic, just, to, just so everyone <laughs> knows. So the author goes on to talk about how uh, this author references Alan Bloom, who is, of course, famous for uh, writing the, the closing of the American mind. Kind of this traditional, very like hacky, uh, sort of curmudgeon-y take on the fact that, well, as this author writes, students no longer learn to understand and love their own histories, and that they studied nothing of substance about other cultures beyond a contentless celebration of their victimization. So clearly, again, like swallowing wholesale the argument of someone like Alan Bloom, which has been like rigorously contested. Also using a phrase like their own histories, I think that's doing a lot of work here in this Mm -hmm. sentence. Assuming that the they here is... I guess, ostensibly somebody from the neutral bad perpetrator list who is unfairly maligned. I don't know. To me, that just, when when the word there, they're kind of... Well, and their own. Yeah, mm-hmm. their that, own that, that, That's the history they own, goddammit. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and they need to be proud of it. And they need yeah. to just, you know, really, really fight for it and defend mm-hmm. it vigorously. And that's yeah. what the Academy should be about. Exactly. Well, yeah. Well, it's probably presuming that this is something that should or is not currently being taught enough Right. In early education, Precisely. right? The importance of our history. Yeah, Need more I never great books. said the Pledge of Allegiance in school. <laughs> really? You. Yeah, no, I was. We, we, we said it backwards because Satan said we were supposed to. Yeah. Oh, there are you were, I, come you from were liberal, I come from liberal Pittsburgh. So, ah, that's you know. it. Yeah, that would do it. So, yeah. yeah, classic. So, by the late 2000s, the author writes, the two-column package shown above uh, that we just referenced had found its way into PowerPoint slides in professional programs like education, social work, and counseling psychology. This package, and then in parentheses, let's call it grievance studies, has now crept in diluted form into science, medicine, and clinical psychology. 
ideology. So at this point, it's important to mention that grievance studies, as I mentioned before, the uh, the SoCal Squared people, that is what they called the collection of journals that they submitted hoax papers to. They called them grievance studies journals. So I think that's important to mention. So we can presume that grievance studies are things like gender studies, feminist studies, critical race theory, post-colonialism, anything oriented around studying systems of power and how these have affected marginalized people is just studying the latest grievance. What's mm-hmm. the cool grievance this week, guys? <laughs> well, let me What ask, are we grieving about? Well, well, let me ask you something. Can you scientifically <laughs> prove that systems of power exist, Calvin? Can you do that? Can you show me an experiment that you can conduct to show the existence of these systems of power? Uh, give me a couple hours. <laughs> Well, while Calvin, it's in the clouds, in the patterns, right? yeah, in right. the weather We're, patterns. We've yeah. got a lot of labs here at Carnegie Mellon. Yeah. We do, yeah. Russell something up. Yeah. So to that end, I ask that on purpose because of what's coming next. Masculinity has earned a reputation as a top villain in the two-column grievance package. One increasingly popular version of the masculinity is bad for everyone story is that it is bad for itself. According to recent American Psychological Association guidelines for the treatment of boys and men, traditional masculinity is harmful and must be done away with. And then in parentheses here, they've commented on the other things other places. The APA, in classic grievance studies fashion, appears to conflate masculinity with its public health risk factors and predictably conjures tradition as the main causal link between male sex and bad stuff. Psychologists are correct to outline a set of common risky male traits. What is typically missed in the grievance studies picture, however, is that and this is important, traditional masculinity is protective against, not responsible for, those risks. So the author brings up Harvey Mansfield uh, talking about being a lover of great books and that it's hard to come across nuanced praise for masculinity and says that reducing manliness to masculinity, whether through empirical science or feminist cultural studies, robs it of its virtue. What I want to emphasize here is that it is important to cultivate the virtues of manliness in academia. I will also argue that academia needs more men. How are we feeling so far, guys? Well, I mean, it's bizarre that he puts out there traditional masculinity protects against these bad things, but he doesn't say what the bad things are, and he also gives no evidence that it protects against those bad things. How? Like, if if all of this psychological research is showing an association between traditional masculinity and these bad things, how can it possibly be empirically the case that Traditional masculinity also protects. It's clearly not doing a very good job if it's consistently co-occurring with those bad things. Whatever they are, we're not told. Yes, I'm surprisingly not buying into the argument at this point, but I'm looking forward to what's to come yes. with the feminist studies. So, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll see a little bit of uh, the quote-unquote science behind this and talking about those risk factors. But uh, okay, so brace yourself for what's about to come next. Discrimination has acquired a bad name, but at its core, it is an ethically, though not aesthetically, neutral act. It's a negative term. <laughs> discriminate. I mean, it, it's acquired a bad name. It dis- you discriminate. You leave out. 
Now, now, hang on. Dis, it's the, the prefix is negative. <laughs> now, hang on. Before we get too emotional Sorry. here, Calvin, Sorry. let's let's rein it um, in. I let's... think that's my place to get too emotional. So if you cannot like step on my yeah. territory, I don't have a lot of room in academia, but I'm pretty sure it's supposed to be occupying some emotional space. So <laughs> I'll leave that to if you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So so this author is about to is about to phrase police us here. To discriminate is to distinguish. To notice a difference, to bring a pertinent detail to attention. Learning to discriminate is key, for example, to aesthetic appreciation. So if you can say, this is using the word in the sense of, this person has a discriminating taste in fine art or... (laughs) Or fine wine, fine food. And of course, assuming that there's a direct applicability of that same type of discrimination to the kind of discrimination that we're talking about in terms of uh, gender and difference. Uh, So (laughs) he continues, learning to discriminate is key, for example, to aesthetic appreciation. One can learn to discriminate the sound of period instruments in a Baroque concerto, a style of a brushstroke in a painting, or which way is north from looking at the sun. In ethical life, learning to discriminate relevant criteria to justify the treatment of a person is an important and difficult task. To paraphrase philosopher David Benatar, one can speak... Philosopher Pat Benatar. Pat Benatar. (laughs) (laughs) Now I'm on board. Now, here we go. Let's go. One can speak of wrongful discrimination when irrelevant criteria are elevated above relevant ones to justify the ethical treatment of a person. And again, this is important to call attention to the fact that this author is talking about relevant versus irrelevant criteria to justify the ethical treatment of a person. There are good reasons to believe, of course, that sex and gender are irrelevant criteria in determining someone's academic and intellectual worth. In the widespread practice of openly discriminating against males in academia, for example, I'm sorry, I couldn't get through that one with a straight face. In that that classic widespread practice we all know and love, in the widespread practice of openly Openly discriminating against males in academia, for example, there are implicit ways in which females are also wrongly discriminated against. I'm sorry, can we get a spit take on that sentence? Like, (laughs) that's just so patently ridiculous. Well, with all of these, and and, I mean, I think the writing style here is very bizarre because with all of these, I'm waiting for an example immediately after, but it's just such evidence-free sophistry. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what you can't see, because we're on a podcast, if anybody knew, Calvin and I keep like tilting our heads to the side and just making these odd gestures, like any time something is said, there's no evidence after it, but it just sounds wrong. Right. So I have nothing to say to these things at this point, but I disagree with them. Well, yeah, but I'm like here waiting for waiting the Waiting for evidence. something else. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so we're, we're about to get an example. It's oh, not a, it's not a, it's not, goodness. it's not a real one. It's a hypothetical, the best kind of example. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, so anyway. So surprising that this guy is working in hypotheticals. Precisely. Suppose a bright and talented student is chosen as a mentee by her male professor and is given opportunities to present and publish her work. Now suppose that the professor, again the male, the professor's criterion for choosing the student, the female, was her physical attractiveness and not her work, to which he might have dedicated only a cursory glance. This widespread problem, so he's referring back to what he just said as a widespread problem, is a clear incidence of sexism. That is, using sex and its correlates as the wrong criteria to justify differential treatment. Okay, wait, we're going to stop here because... If I hear that correctly, I think what he's saying is that it's sexist because it it prevents men from getting those opportunities. It's that's, not sexist because it's not objectifying. No, that, it is. That is that is one hundred percent what he's saying. I mean, 
I agree with it, but not in the way that he wants me to no, agree with it. That's the thing. <laughs> that's yes, so exactly. sneaky. Yeah, it's yes. incredibly sneaky. It's incredibly <laughs> yes. sneaky. So gorgeous, I, uh, gorgeous. Yeah, gorgeous. This is me. absolutely gorgeous work. <laughs> that's for all my team rhetoric listeners out there. Yes. Gorgeous work. I'm yeah. intoxicated. Oh, man, as are we all. So it's important to, to, I think, every time I read a phrase like widespread problem or something to that effect where there's this major assumption about something being like a, a huge problem in academia, I'm just going to go eh, into the mic just so that we know that there's a pretty major assumption. Yeah, being flag made that for evidence needed. Sex, of course, can be a relevant criterion for differential treatment. Restorative cases of positive sexism provide the most obvious example. If, as was the case in recent history... Love positive sexism. Positive My sexism. favorite kind of sexism. That's right, mm-hmm. as opposed to, to negative sexism. Yep. If, as was the case in recent history, women were officially barred from certain fields of study on the basis of their sex, then a redressing effort might be justified. Redistribution to counter de facto systemic discrimination is more complex. If, as was the case in recent history, again, recent history here, women were often verbally discouraged from entering certain fields of study on the basis of cultural expectations about their sex, redistribution might again be justified. But... Distinguishing between difference, disadvantage, and wrongful discrimination, to use Pat Benatar's terminology, is no easy task. Here we go. Some men's rights activists, for example, see evidence of sexist discrimination in the fact that girls graduate high school and university at much higher rates than boys, that boys are overwhelmingly more likely to receive corporal punishment or be victims of violent crimes, or that boys and men have higher suicide and mortality rates than women. Average biological and psychological differences between males and females, however, likely account for most of these outcomes. Survey research from three continents has shown that once institutional barriers are removed, females academically outperform males across the board in childhood, adolescence, and adulthood. And that's a problem? Yes. According to this author, that is a... That, see, this is the whole... This is where the turn comes, right? Yeah, where's he going? Yeah. The same is true of longevity. Once progress in medicine has lowered the incidence of mortality in childbirth, males have much poorer health and higher mortality rates at every age, in all periods of life, including in utero. Male sex also correlates with much higher rates of of all forms of intellectual and learning disabilities, as well as substance and conduct disorders. The epidemiological conclusions are clear. Females, on average, benefit from psychological, biological, and cultural advantages that clearly make them the stronger sex. That is such frank bullshit. Oh, my God. <laughs> Don't you guys just feel so bad for men at this point, though? Like, yeah. We're just so yeah. disadvantaged at every turn. I just don't understand. Well, all those... here's what I think is amazing, too, about that whole stretch that we just heard. So the amount of space that men's rights activists were given as a mm. kind of yes. privileged outside source where whereas we we passed like several very questionable claims early in the article that had no evidence but we do get a lot of evidence from these men's rights activists which i just think is a little odd i mean i, I think he introduced them not necessarily to explicitly agree with them but you have to wonder 
why they're given so much space. This is a cherry-picked argument. Yeah. Well, and it's it's going to become, I think, clear a little bit later. I don't want to spoil anything, but we're going to get some of those men's rights activists. They're coming uh, back. Yeah, the references to that particular community, or the references, I should say, used in that particular community are going to come back with a force later in this article. We got a lot of, uh, a lot of tasty treats ahead of us here. The author goes into saying, on average, most females, you know, have all these advantages over men. The only exception to overall female advantage in academics is... Anybody want to guess what he's going to say? Math. Mathematical ability in which females, on average, display slightly less aptitude than males. The overall trend across developed countries is that girls score significantly higher in reading than boys and have similar results in science and lower scores in mathematics and kind of just goes through some other like bell curve arguments about how, you know, gender differences follow a certain statistical significance, blah, 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 blah. This is basically if you've read any Charles Murray, you're going to get pretty much the same kind of argument. And then continues that many feminists consider the lower percentage of females in mathematics a sign of sexism, despite the fact that women clearly flourish and outnumber men in most other fields, including medicine and biology, reflects this confusion between difference, disadvantage, and discrimination. One way to recruit more women to mathematics would be to lower academic standards. No, no, that doesn't make any sense. No, it's... The problem, like, maybe we, I feel sad, but maybe we should be clear about this. The problem is not that women are less able to complete mathematical equations than men. The problem is that women have fewer opportunities to enter into those avenues or scholastic programs than men do. There are fewer opportunities for women to gain that knowledge or to get those jobs. Mm-hmm. Now, when you say fewer, that's kind of a mathematical claim. Oh, God. Have you done the, have you followed this up with um, any <laughs> mathematical uh, tests or, or procedures or theorems? I have, but I wouldn't want to embarrass you Ooh. by the data that I've collected. So if you want to talk about it later, we can, <laughs> I but can't I don't want to. We'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, we're, we're men. We'll, we put, yeah, we'll put it in the show notes. Is that yeah. a thing? That's, that yeah, that's thing. what we... Okay. Yeah, that's, that, yeah. Is the, that is the phrase. Okay. I'll expect um, that on my desk. Good. Okay, so, but this author doesn't really agree with that. In addition to being condescending and economically disastrous, again, that's important that we emphasize that not only is it condescending, but it also is bad for the market. This solution would probably not change the lower average interest that women have in mathematics. Here we go. (laughs) We might also accept, as we do in athletics, that average differences needn't be measured against a single benchmark, that they diminish at the tails, and that it is not a big deal to most people that they don't. Yeah, just just this like weird cognitive science pablum. It is not substantiated by anything other than confirmation bias data. The best solution, consistent with our egalitarian goals, would be to educate teachers and policymakers about the distinct strengths and needs of boys, while creating more avenues to encourage the inclusion of boys, as well as events, practices, institutions, and cultural values that raise sensitivity about boys' and men's issues. I still don't understand what the issues are. What are the issues facing boys? Yeah. Also, what are boys and men? Exactly. That's that's a largely, like, hugely... How do they transition from boys to men? Right. Well... We'll drop some boys to men in there. There we right go. There. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
So I think, I mean, one of the things that's kind of important here is that on its face, like there is sort of a kernel of truth in here, which I think is what makes this article even more problematic is that it is able to kind of mask itself in what is like a sincere, like, I mean, yes, we should be sensitive to boys and men's issues as we should be sensitive to everybody's issues, right? Like, I mean, Mm -hmm. that's part of an egalitarian goal is to be understanding of people's, you know, differences and things like that. But I think what really loses me in this part of the argument is how this author seems to assume that there are not already these avenues, like a myriad of avenues that encourage the inclusion of boys, as well as events, practices, and institutions and cultural values that are designed to include men. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. look at like all of human history up to, yeah, the, up to like this point. Finance, the military, like mm-hmm. corporate America, the Freemasons. Yeah. Uh, secret, all secret societies. <laughs> the Freemasons. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. There is every, it, it, it's just, I don't see any evidence for the fact that there are diminished avenues for men. This seems to be a kind of, you know, relying on the assumption that because now, you know, we're experiencing, you know, somewhat of a leveling of the playing field in terms of, you know, creating more avenues for the inclusion of women and girls, mm-hmm. that's going to be at the expense of boys and men. Well, it sounds similar to the, like, the all lives matter argument, yes. right? Articulating that black lives matter that is to say that white lives don't matter. Right. Yeah. Which is obviously not true. It's a that's false not binary. yeah, that's yeah. yeah. You guys ever again wonder how just you think about how women are just too privileged in our society? Well, if you haven't, our author is about to avail you to that. Sex-specific opportunities are widely available to girls and women in the form of women's clinics, women's police and courts, women's scholarships, international campaigns against violence against women and girls, and entire programs of scholarship, art, politics, and culture dedicated to women's studies. Think of the moral and increasingly political obligation to embrace feminism, a form of partisan discrimination and positive sexism dedicated to women's issues, perspectives, needs, etc., while equivalent masculinist partisanship is perceived as an aberration. Consider the comparatively small field of masculinity studies is mostly committed to a stigmatizing view of males and revisionist history borrowed from feminist partisanship. (laughs) Okay. Here's where we start like really getting into the the hot the hot tea here. Men's rights activists are thus empirically correct in describing this discrepancy as a form of widespread discrimination against boys and men. Note that men's higher average propensity towards impulsivity, physical aggression, and intellectual disabilities, again, citation needed, does not constitute disadvantage or discrimination. Such temperamental differences, rather, disadvantage men in modern environments that overwhelmingly solicit a more composed set of attitudes. It is in ignoring this disadvantage in policy and practice practice that we can speak of discrimination so here's the thing earlier in the article he defined discrimination as not bad Mm -hmm. um so i'm here what i'm hearing and i could be misinterpreting it maybe he's slipped back into a a negative a socially problematic understanding of discrimination Mm -hmm. but I'm hearing this as like, this isn't necessarily bad. I'm just saying here, men are discriminated against like statistically in these areas. Mm -hmm. But clearly, if that's what he's doing, he's depending on his audiences hearing it in a negative way and going like, yeah, you're right. Mm -hmm. Men are Mm -hmm. discriminated against. Mm -hmm. So it's a very, again, a very sly kind of enthymematic thing where Mm -hmm. there's an unstated assumption Mm -hmm. that he knows people will fill in according to 
you know, certain sexist, misogynist interests. Which might be why he doesn't feel compelled to provide any... To say it openly. Or to provide any evidence for any of his claims. Yeah, exactly. Which is ironic, given the sort of, you know, that he... The empiricist. Yeah, he's uh, got a little bit of an empiricist bias here. He continues... Now we're getting into the the action stasis here. The case for recruiting and retaining more male students is obvious. The case for ensuring that enough males, and manly men in particular, are hired as professors remains to be demonstrated. Manliness ought to be encouraged and cultivated in male students, regardless of their sexuality. But it would be unjust to elevate it as a strong inclusion criterion at that level. Professors, however, have additional responsibilities to fulfill as mentors and role models. Can I just ask, though, manliness has not been defined here at any point. No. Not at all. Not yet. Let us return to the moral obligation to embrace feminism, the obsession with the toxic dimension of masculinity, and the confusing message delivered to young men, young men who already suffer from systemic neglect. False. False. Uh, The problem lies in the impractical pathologization of the widespread and long-standing cultural traditions that best understand and address men's temperaments. Again, men's temperaments being a big assumption here, particularly in relation to men's differences from women. It is in keeping with the protective aspects of these traditions that manly men are needed as role models for both young men and women. (laughs) Manliness, manliness is a character virtue predominantly, but not exclusively associated with the male sex and with men's gender roles. (laughs) Harvey Mansfield's definition of masculine. Manly Mansfield. Yeah, manly Mansfield. Hardly, uh, Harvey Manleysfield's definition of manly virtue is usually summarized as confidence in the face of risk. It encompasses the same average male traits, higher propensity towards risk-taking and aggression, for example, which in the absence of character education, which is what, predictably leads to heavy drinking, brawling, womanizing, and all the negative health and crime statistics that tend to afflict the male sex. In Mansfield's formulation, male traits become gentlemanly virtues, through polish and perfection. A man's physical strength and appetite for risk can be polished into the strengths of confidence and the ability to reassure, protect, and respect those weaker than him. Quote, A gentleman is a man who is gentle out of policy, not weakness, Mansfield tells us. Quote, A gentleman declines opportunities to push himself on others by means of will, to say nothing of greater brawn. As role models, manly men thus adopt a style of nurturing distinct from that of most women. Theirs is an autonomy-supporting, risk-encouraging form of mentorship, a firm, respectful, yet gentle variety of caring that inspires strength and autonomy by example. As opposed to As what, opp- what is women's... It's sort of implied that women coddle and yeah. women... Um... And are very, like, obsessed with victimhood and, yeah, kind of the other... I, I think that's Don't what's take risks, yeah. you know, don't yeah. have autonomy... Well, he's not being very bold in saying what he thinks then, though. It's no. like the whole point of being a manly man mm-hmm. is to, what, it, what was it, Take be confident in the face of risks yeah. or whatever? Wouldn't right. that be, then tell me what you think about me, no, man. No, he's not taking yeah. many risks. Why, he's not, no. why isn't he doing no. that? Is he afraid that I will not be a manly woman and get into these brawls and, mm-hmm. you know, go into heavy, I don't know what he's, I don't get it. 
Yeah, I think that the clearest evidence for like what he's defining this against is probably the stuff that's in the beginning. However, we're we're coming up on probably my favorite part of the article pretty soon here. There's a little bit more lead up to it, but we're about to get into like the real meat of this here. So he writes, manliness is also antithetical. Indeed, it is the antidote to toxic masculinity. In the current climate of widespread anxieties about sex, gender, and sexuality on college campuses, again, whose anxieties here? Uh, the presence of <laughs> anxieties from the from the perspective of these this weird neurotic set of quasi academics who think that things deviating from the quote unquote tradition is somehow like the aberration here, right? right. Um, some of us, you know, are actually quite clear in our ethical commitments to our stances on sex, gender, and sexuality. The presence of manly gentlemen can offer a reassuring model of confidence and pride in their sex for men. And a composed... Simply wear a fedora. Yes. Smoke a pipe. <laughs> uh, wear a suit every day. Carry yeah. a briefcase. Every time you see a woman in the hallway, you nod to her and say, "Milady." Yeah. <laughs> this can provide calm. This can resolve such anxieties. Is oh, that, no. wouldn't you agree, Maggie? I'm identifying with that. Yeah, I think, yeah, if everyone addressed me as milady. So the you were talking about when the presence is assur- reassuring. Yes, yeah, yeah. These are vanishing qualities of mentorship, the author writes, which would be beneficial to both male and female students. And then he goes into this kind of really weird argument about how gentlemanly mentorship can help reduce anxieties about and incidences of sexual assault. And I don't I don't even want to really humor this, and like speak it on the podcast because it's it's really stupid <laughs> um, and is kind of like he's he's making claims here about like what counts as sexual assault or, you know, other things like that as. Just I I don't know I I like I said I don't even want to humor the perspective uh, just because it's it's really stupid and offensive. Okay, get ready, you guys. So he's saying that these things are are declining in the overall academy. Here's some more hypothetical proof for this disappearance of the manly man. I love hypothetical proofs. Again, the best type, especially for a mathematics obsessed uh, mm-hmm. you know, right, mind, empiricist male male mm-hmm. uh, math empiricist. Consider a novel cultural type, parodied as a meme in darker corners of the internet, the soy boy. Oh. (laughs) Maggie, are you familiar with this term? No, uh, like soy milk? It's like tofu, other soy products. It's men who eat so many soy products, and soy products often have a lot of estrogen in them. They're phytoestrogens. There's uh, a, there's a, this weird conspiracy theory that if you eat... Like, that if you if eat you too eat much to- of that stuff, you yeah. start to act more like a woman. Oh. Yeah. Alex, um, this is a problem for you. It's a huge... I'm a vegetarian, Me so too. I do eat a lot, a lot of soy. Of tofu. Oh, but at yeah. the same time, like, I'm, you know, I'm fine. Although I guess this person would probably think I'm deranged because I'm going against what he says. So, the, the Urban Dictionary. I love how they he the Urban Dictionary. The Urban oh. Dictionary defines... The Merriam-Webster Urban Dictionary. <laughs> the Urban Dictionary defines a soy boy with reference to popular beliefs about soy consumption and increased estrogen as a man devoid of all masculine qualities. A man who is, quote, a feminist, non-athletic, has never been in a fight... <laughs> will probably marry the first girl that he has sex with (laughs) and likely reduces all his arguments to labeling the opposition as Nazis, end quote. (laughs) So again, rigorous sources of evidence such as the Urban Dictionary are being brought in here. The only time that I use the Urban Dictionary is if a student of mine uses a word that I've never heard of before. Yeah. And even then, like on fleek, yeah, or what's another... um, 
somebody introduced a new word to me that like something's bought. Oh yeah, that's bought. That's mm-hmm. bought. Yeah, I would never heard that before. Let's get this bread stuff yeah. like that. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. This stereotype, he writes, however crude, offers an eerily precise description of the effeminate, social justice loving, self hating man with loose clothing and bad posture who abounds on college campuses. Now this is awkward because I'm looking at one right now. <laughs> yeah. The description is so accurate. I just, I'm hunched over this microphone. I've, yeah. got, I've got a loose a loose shirt just hanging about my yeah. hanging about my neck, you know, just like like a bib. Loose clothing. That's the part. I mean the bad posture, everyone under a certain age has bad posture, <laughs> exactly. but like loose clothing? Yeah. Yeah. Where does that come from? Like, Can't what afford is a tailored suit. A, a manly man the would early be able 90s, to afford tailored like, clothing. Parachute pants, is that what we're talking about? Like yeah. maybe cargo probably. pants. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's unclear which type of loose clothing. I thought it was skinny jeans. He's mixing stereotypes. I mean, I I think what he's trying to reference here is like the virgin meme, the virgin versus Chad meme from, you know, like the darker corners of the incel men's rights Uh kind of dorky corner of the Internet. I don't remember the virgin wearing parachute pants. That's true. Call me crazy. Yeah. Yeah, neither do I. Whether most or any of these boys are sincere ideologues who celebrate their castration in the privacy of their own souls. Excuse me? Boy, this got got real. This got real MRAE real fast. Um, Is an interesting. Love to celebrate my castration in the privacy of my own soul. That's what I do most weekends. Pardon me, guys. I'm just going to go home and celebrate my castration in the privacy of my soul. It is just as likely that, in most cases, being a soy boy is a cynical and effortful form of signaling performed over career, social credit, and seduction purposes. Okay, so these guys are the morally reprehensible ones. These are the sexually pernicious uh, people. Virtue signaling is a socially adaptive way to confirm moral status on oneself. It is also an important campus rite of passage an exercise in learning to conform to social nuances, a performance likely to be relaxed after universities. Mating rituals conducted under this guise during seductively formative years, however, may be more worrisome. First of all, okay, calling anything human-oriented a mating ritual is an immediate, like, that is, eh, 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 like, huge alarm bell for, like, this weird biodeterministic like men's yeah. rights activist chud <laughs> if you're refer- could be like if you're an anthropologist and I you're guess. yeah but studying. i don't want this guy studying not, yeah. uh human populations in that way I, yeah. I don't i don't trust him to treat Fair. human subjects very well no i agree in adopting and signaling, whether sincerely or not, a partisanship that confirms their own castration, there it is again, soy boys are also rehearsing a weakness of will that may lead to lack of self-control in other domains. The social justice generation, it is often said, conflates responsibility with power and power with badness. Less often mentioned is that power is sexy. Let's just True. With, Let's just sit with that for a moment. Like power, like having power, like have, being able to turn the lights on. That is yeah. sexy. I mean, yeah. it's, you know, because you can see. I just love paying I mean, my electricity well, bill Well, turning the light, yeah. Yeah, that's true, though. If you have a dimmer, that, I mean, that's arguably the most set. You can put some mood lighting on. That could be sexy, on. yeah. You have power over your power. Increased right. power over your power. Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, mm-hmm. The hard-to-resist temptation of Eros at the core of the student-teaching relationship. Okay, sorry. This is where it gets really creepy. I just it have to give creepy. this up. The hard-to-resist temptation of Eros at the core of the student-teacher relationship, recognized by the ancient Greeks, does not figure in current conversation 
regulations on sexual safety. Consider this unspoken, though widely known, rule of thumb. Here we go. Each semester, a large number of female students will develop crushes on the least unattractive and most charismatic of their male professors. That's annoying. Wait, yeah. is it... So what did you say? This is a known fact? Yes. What does that have to unspoken, do with anything? The widely known and... Unspoken, though widely known. Rule of thumb. Each semester, a large number of female students will develop crushes on the least unattractive and most charismatic of their male professors. Socrates viewed this childish love as a useful but temporary motivation to learn, an illusion that had to be traded for a more mature kind of love. So he goes on to like basically butcher hey. Socrates. I'm sorry. We should not be yeah you're butchering we should not be using socrates to talk about women's relationships with mm-hmm. their f- professors yeah or student I, or anybody's relationship by, my goodness you know, yeah exactly. like cicero for instance yeah. <laughs> a little bit yeah a little Maybe. bit closer Let's, come on yeah exactly <laughs> i'm guessing he's he's talking about the phaedrus here uh in this in i don't i don't mm-hmm. know though it's very unclear can i ask another question yes like, who is this supposed to be for? And where was this, like, where was this published? How was this circulating? Well, so again, it's important to note that this is published in Aereo magazine. Okay, this right. is the one that's, not all the articles are, are like this in that magazine. I should say that there is some stuff that's worthy and, like, of merit in that magazine. But again, it's important to note, like, who it's edited by is, like, the so-called squared. Uh, Hoax. Kind of, the hoaxers, uh, basically. Who, okay. are, who are basically are, trolling the humanities. Yeah, so this is for people... Who are largely critical of the humanities for having too much feminism, too right. much critical race theory. So we shouldn't be too surprised then by what oh, they're no. saying. No, sadly. I don't think so. Not yeah. in the slightest. Okay, so here's, again, where it gets, this is where the author again starts kind of telling on himself and kind of getting even more creepy. We might extrapolate from this to a more normative claim we ought to teach our students. Many of you will fall in love with your professors. When you realize that this love is an illusion, you will be ready to learn. The flip side of this maxim is equally, if not more important. Yet another unspoken but widely known rule eh, is that each semester, the least mature male professors will typically fall in love or lust with the best looking women among their students. Now, again, I don't want to maybe say that this is like, because again, this is not untrue. This is something that does happen in academia. The writer writes, To be sure, there might be reason to defend how and why, in some cases, the intimacy of souls afforded by graceful intellectual exchange, Uh, notably among professors and graduate students, bing, ding, ding, eh, 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 may be conducive (laughs) to the kinds of reciprocal feelings we could call love. I do think that this deserves a pause and a comment here because there is a very complicated line between, especially when you're dealing with relationships between professors and graduate students, there is a huge power dynamic that's at play there that I think it's complicated, right? Like it's not something that we can easily just sort of write off as like, well, maybe it's love. I mean, I will give him some credit because he does say, but average experiences rarely meet these criteria. I mean, I don't know. The fact that he gave that much voice to the justification is Mm -hmm. still like a little too creepy for my taste. And it Uh, assumes a heterosexual perspective, right? Let's be clear also that all of these people need to be attracted to the opposite sex. Mm -hmm. Yep. So he goes in saying also, you know, professors thus ought to be taught their side of the maxim. Many of you will fall in love with your students. When you realize this desire is an illusion, you will be ready to teach. So 
essentially he's counterposing this. <laughs> so I'm offended wait, by wait, that. Wait, wait, wait. Yeah, let's let's so let's go. Be, to so you can be a good student once you're no longer horny, and you can be a good, a good teacher. teacher when <laughs> you're no longer, longer horny. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. The 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 upshot of cool this pedagogy, is, uh, bro. Yeah, is is uh, this is where again it delves into like real real hot take hours, rather than bureaucratized, condescending, impractical, fragilizing, and alienating consent training. Male students and professors in training could benefit from good manly mentorship. Here's a question. Manly mentorship. Manly mentorship. Mm, Rolls off the tongue. Here's a question for male professors. How many of you have had the rare honor to be given the respectful, kind, and firm advice to keep your dick in your pants by older male mentors? Who amongst us? Maggie? (laughs) I sadly don't fall into this category. For a number of reasons. Okay. I don't need to go. I mean, right? I'm not a man. I mean, I just, you know, I heard this uh, every day in coursework. <laughs> Stop. He is obviously joking. No, yes. <laughs> we, I just. That's I, so crazy. Yeah. I mean, it's possible. It is possible that some men at some point have, like, has been told that by someone it's else. It's just wild that he's, oh, yeah, no, I'm sure it has happened, but yeah. it's wild that he's putting this forward as being normative. And yeah. a viable I mean, alternative to consent training, which yeah. is like. Yeah. Well, and this also totally conflicts with his prior assumption that, like, autonomy is a cardinal value. Yes. Like, autonomy is everything, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If we're truly trying to cultivate autonomy, we should absolutely like not be dismissive and contemptuous of consent training like that is the very basis of consent training is yeah. like you respect everyone's autonomy and you absolutely exercise your responsibility as an autonomous individual keep your blank in your pants is is assuming that you cannot be autonomous yes and therefore you need to place some kind of forceful constraint on yourself that's why well yeah i think that's exactly right calvin that's why those arguments don't make any sense because a lot of the arguments made and these similar men as these as this author argue you know well boys are just being boys they can't help themselves so it's yeah it's very odd that he is using this idea of autonomy to support his Poorly argued. argued. Very internally conflicted. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of anxiety going on here, and it's not coming from, quote-unquote, grievance studies. That's, yes, I think that's absolutely. And it's weird, too, coming from the fact that, like, again, this seems to me somebody who would buy into this sort of, like, bio-deterministic thing about, like, male sexual impulses and things like that. And that kind of, like, is almost, in a weird way, kind of like what Maggie was, like, this is, he's almost, like, fetishizing that repression a little mm-hmm. bit. I don't right. know. It's right. just, it's, yeah, it's it feels very incel-y. So we're, we're almost coming to the conclusion here. So he's giving us one last sort of statement of the problem here. Academia may thus be facing another silent epidemic a plague of weak, impulsive, impressionable virtue signalers who are all ill-prepared and ill-disposed to deal with the advances, overt, covert, or entirely fantasized, of their female students and may act too quickly and foolishly in initiating sexual and romantic conduct. Okay, so here he's just kind of giving up the ghost and saying, no, women are to blame <laughs> for this uh, for this thing. Um, their advances will occur. They're in, again, they are the normal thing is that these advances will happen, and now we're going to have men who won't be able to stop themselves. Yep. This is why it's important to discriminate in favor of manliness. Again, not men, but manliness in academic hiring. 
Some might object that academic merit, rather than character virtues, still constitutes the most important criterion in hiring. However, though officially unrecognized and otherwise unfashionable, virtues play an important role in impression formation and hiring decisions. Take, for example, the importance of integrity, friendliness, and humility. Detecting character virtues is the main justification of the effort and expense of in-person interviews, which typically include effortful performances of silent evaluations at informal events, such as dinners, cocktails, and long walks through campus. Manliness should be deemed as important as integrity, humility, and academic merit in considering male candidates, of which a high enough number needs to be guaranteed. Just had to throw that little piece in there at the very end. That sentence is just structured awfully. Like, yes. wh- what was the last phrase of which a certain number has yes. to be guaranteed? Yes. So is that referring back to manliness? Uh, no, to male candidates. Male candidates. Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, so we just need them. It's an anti-affirmative action argument. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay, so if you don't hate this author yet, he's giving you one last reason to do so in this last paragraph. Lay it on me. The final objection that one might anticipate is that this traditional sex role virtue model does not account for the priorities of gender non-conforming folks. I have addressed transgender rights elsewhere, and he links to, I'm sure, what is a very nuanced and good take on that. Given that the vast majority of trans folks identify with one of two genders and not something in between, they should benefit from the protective aspects of manliness as everyone else. Time to man up, ladies and gentlemen. That's literally him. That's what he says at the end of the the article. However, it's also, I I think it's important to note that Aereo Magazine did put something underneath this article that says, we are an equal opportunity and affirmative action employer committed to (laughs) assembling a diverse, broadly trained faculty and staff. Women, men, manly men, minorities, and people with disabilities and veterans are strongly encouraged to apply. (laughs) That's ridiculous. Wait, can you read the last line again? Yes. Uh, Wait, the the one from the article or the... Yeah, the the one from the article. Okay. So, oh, that time to man up, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) That's not fair. I can't man up because I'm a woman. Right. So I can't even participate in his invitation. But he's saying that you should help man up the entire university. You should increase the amount of men and increase the amount of manly men. I see. It's your responsibility as a woman to uphold and promote a culture of manliness uh, in academia. I will add it to the things that I am supposed to be doing as a woman. So, (laughs) yeah, I'm sure you love that. Yeah. Just more work. Yeah. Yeah. More labor. Socially sanctioned behaviors are fun. Woo. So that is why traditional masculinity is good for academia. Thoughts? Just absolute drivel. Just a kind of like evidence-free, no terms defined, super conflicted, as we said earlier, logically inconsistent, sneaking in arguments without fully affirming them or fully exploring them and and kind of earnestly defending them, just fails on its own terms Mm -hmm. as a display of masculine rhetoric, Mm -hmm. quote-unquote, in the sense that it's not well supported or yeah. or forthright in any regard. Maggie, <laughs> I agree. I agree with what Calvin said. I hope that folks listening also understand how sarcasm works. Yes, because there was a lot yeah, of sarcasm. Yeah, we'll, we'll, throw, we'll throw a sarcasm warning yes. on the beginning. Okay, of the cool. Yes. I know that I don't know how to behave any other way. Often, yeah, yeah, I agree with what you said. This is whack. 
<laughs> a yeah. word I learned through the Urban Dictionary. Oh, thank you, the Urban Dictionary. Thank we uh, we are uh, offering the Urban Dictionary subscriptions half off mm-hmm. at ReverbCast.com. Right. If you enter the code Reverb uh, Manly 20, Mexican. you can get 20% <laughs> off a, a mug or t-shirt with Soy Boy printed on it. Yeah. <laughs> it's definition. So I've already ordered one. <laughs> Me too. I actually, yeah. No, I feel like there's... And I feel like we're going to have a lot of this in articles that we take a look at as part of the series is the places where, and I mentioned this before, where there are things like a widely known phenomenon or Mm -hmm. just those kind of like Mm -hmm. that. I think we need to pay attention to those in articles like this, because I think the lack of evidence combined with phrases like that tell us a lot about who these kinds of arguments are directed at. Mm -hmm. They are largely directed at people who already believe a lot of the Mm -hmm. tacit assumptions that are going on here. So, for example, that there is extreme discrimination of men going on in the university. I mean, Mm -hmm. speaking as a pretty privileged white man, like I don't, I don't feel discriminated against in any way here. And in Mm -hmm. fact, like I see the way in which like I am super privileged over a lot of people. And that makes, that makes me uncomfortable. I guess I would be called a self-hating soy boy by this uh, author. But you know, if that's the terms that he's going to use to malign a potential audience member, I don't really care to hear the argument, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have nothing more to add. I just think, you know, masculinity, to be completely earnest, masculinity and men as a concept is something that is constructed every day in discourse. Yes. Mm-hmm. And discourse like this does horrible work in the world to, mm-hmm. you know, to construct it in ways that are negative or, or that are that are very stultifying. And, and I think that's the source of the anxiety that this author feels and that that you know that he's speaking to if anything is it's drivel like this so Mm -hmm. that's my take i agree if to the extent that there is a traditional masculinity it is a tradition that needs to be done away with and let that be the end of it Thank you very much, everybody, for joining us uh, for this first episode of Rejoinder today. Thank you, Maggie and Calvin, for being here as well. It was not a pleasure. <laughs> yeah, it was not a pleasure, but at the same time, it was fun. Yeah, I did Absolutely. have I had fun roasting yeah. this roasting yeah. this yeah. this stuck pig here. So. Love some pot roast. Absolutely. Yep. Well, now that we're all filled up, until next time, guys. All right. See you later. Bye. Our show today was produced by Alex Helberg. Calvin Pollock, and Maggie Goss, with editing work by Alex and Calvin. Reverb's co-producers at large are Caitlin Rossi, Colleen Storm, Sophie Wadzak, and Ryan Mitchell. Our graphic design manager is Kari Van Nortwick, and our social media manager is Lizzie Donaldson. You can subscribe to Reverb and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Android, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out our website at www.reverbcast.com. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at ReverbCast. That's R-E-V-E-R-B underscore C-A-S-T. Thanks for tuning in.